The Most Pleasant Exhaustion Podcast is brought to you by High Echelon. You can find them at highechelonCPA.com. High Echelon PC is a nationwide CPA firm in Atlanta focused on a great client experience. High Echelon provides top quality work with total transparency, so clients always know exactly what they're getting. They believe accounting doesn't need to be complicated and that clients should always get the experience they deserve, which includes top-notch accounting, tax and payroll services, timely communication, complete data flow, and the best automation and security. Book a call or drop them a line at their website, highechelloncpa.com. The Most Pleasant Exhaustion Podcast is also brought to you by Elemental Altitude Training Center. You can find them at elementalaltitude.com. Elemental Altitude is Atlanta's best and only altitude training facility. At Elemental Altitude's state-of-the-art indoor training center, they are capable of simulating elevation up to 24,000 feet. Training in the thinner air and lack of oxygen prompts an increase in red blood cells, meaning that more oxygen can be delivered to your working muscles on race day. Athletes undertaking all sorts of goals from rugged mountain climbs to flat sea level marathons to Ironman triathlons train in the hypoxic environment created at Elemental Altitude. I trained there several times myself ahead of my successful race at the London Marathon in 2022. In addition, Elemental Altitude hosts a variety of physiological testing such as sweat testing, blood lactate testing, VO2 max testing, and a variety of metabolic testing which can tell you your resting metabolic rate and the types and amounts of fuel you're burning at different training and racing intensities. Drop them a line at info at elementalaltitude.com if you have questions or you want to set up an appointment. Again, their website is elementalaltitude.com. The Most Pleasant Exhaustion Podcast is also brought to you by Blue Pineapple Travel. You can find them at bluepineappletravel.com. Blue Pineapple Travel is an agency of experienced travel advisors who help you design the perfect trip. Blue Pineapple Travel advisors are all well-traveled and knowledgeable, and they will be your advocates from start to finish. They love to help people plan their travel, whether it's for a race, a family trip, a weekend getaway, or the trip of a lifetime. Their goal is to match you with the trip that you want. Relaxation or adventure, traveling solo or with a group inside the U.S. or abroad, Blue Pineapple Travel can plan exactly the trip that you want. Find them online at bluepineappletravel.com and see some of the great places that folks who have worked with Blue Pineapple Travel go on their Instagram, at bluepineappletravel. Finally, the Most Pleasant Exhaustion Podcast is brought to you by ITL Coaching and Performance. You can find them at itlcoaching.com. ITL Coaching and Performance's mission is to build a community of athletes set on reaching goals and serving the community. They have a passion for helping people achieve their goals and dreams. ITL coaches are real people with phones, emails, and the desire to spend time with you during your training. They are vested in ITL athletes. ITL takes a communal approach to coaching, so there's always someone available to answer questions and to help adjust the training schedule. An ITL coach will be glad to meet with you to chat about your goals and to find the best plan to help you meet those goals. Again, their website is itlcoaching.com. Thanks to all of our sponsors who help us bring you the Most Pleasant Exhaustion Podcast. Pleasant Exhaustion Podcast brought to you by ITO Coaching Performance, Blue Pineapple Travel, High Echelon PC, and Elemental Altitude Training Center. My name is George Darden. I'm an endurance athlete and coach here in Atlanta, Georgia. I'm a father of twin boys, and I'm a college professor. My name is Michelle Frank. I'm also an endurance athlete in Atlanta, Georgia, a mom to three girls and a CPA. 
And my name is Eric Hall. I'm an endurance athlete and coach in Raleigh, North Carolina. I'm the father of three college students and the husband to a beautiful wife, Melissa. We introduce ourselves pretty much the same way every single time. <laughs> and I'm the only person on the podcast who did not run the Silver Rush 50 in Leadville, Colorado a couple weekends ago. How about that? So... Are you an ultra runner? Like I was actually thinking about this because I copied your bio, George. Remember when the Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, and it's like blah, 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 marathon or blah, blah, blah. All, so, hashtag all of the above. Yeah. So I was wondering, like, if you do a 50K, it doesn't really, it doesn't seem that much different than a marathon. Mm -hmm. But if you run a 50 miler, like, does that make you an ultra runner? I think what defines George as an ultra runner is the fact that he's done the Blue Ridge Relay. Because right. whether it's a straight up ultra or it's a series of runs, which is in some ways harder um, during a relay, I think it's, 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 easy, it's easy to define George as an ultra runner. I, I appreciate you saying that. I, I would not define myself as one, but I'm glad you said what you just said because... I think what would define an ultra runner is not somebody who has done an ultra, but would be somebody who actually said, this is a target event for me. And it's an ultra marathon. I've never targeted a made like had an a race and all my training pointed towards it for an ultra with the exception of the blue Ridge relay in 2020. Yeah. To be honest, I wasn't trying to figure out if George was an ultra runner. I was <laughs> fully trying to focused out you on were? me <laughs> and whether I should change my little bio. Um, like if you're an ultra runner, are you still a marathoner? And is just because I finished a 50 mile race, does that now make me an ultra runner? Like I was just having a, a personal conundrum, but I do appreciate the commentary and I do well, agree at, with Eric. I think at, so. at bottom, at bottom, I think you can be whatever you want to be. Right. Um, like and I does used to, the title or label even matter? That's like a whole different podcast, probably. Sure. Uh, <laughs> you know, Eric will tell you. So Eric and I were in the same fraternity at Georgia Tech back in the day, as we've talked about on this podcast before. And and when we, after we were initiated, after we became brothers in the fraternity, pledges had to memorize stuff about us. So they had to memorize our full names. They had to memorize where we grew up. They had to memorize our class, our major. Um, and then they also had to memorize three facts about us. And we would give them like a whole bunch of facts they had to memorize, but but they would have to on demand recite three facts. And one of the facts that I used to always say is that I'm a runner, not a jogger. And pledges had to know <laughs> that I'm a runner, not a jogger. Um, and at this point, you know, after 30 years, I, I, I don't get too, too bogged down and all that sort of thing anymore. Like if you want to call yourself a runner, if you want to call yourself a jogger, if you want to call yourself an ultra runner, if you want to call yourself a marathoner, go for it. But, but that's why I appreciate how we introduce ourselves and you introduced me to you introducing myself as that. If someone says, what do you do? I say, I'm an endurance athlete and coach because that's what I do. Mm -hmm. I, I run 10 Ks. I run five Ks. I run, you know, 50 milers and a hundred milers, but at its core, I'm an endurance athlete. I also ride for three hours on a bike. Mm -hmm. uh, so I think I don't get hung up on that. Oh, I'm an ultra runner. I think that's limiting. <laughs> limiting is a good point um, because because Michelle, there is more to you. As you have said, you're a mother of three girls. You're a business owner. You're a CPA. Th there is more to you than just being an endurance athlete, but I would call you an ultra runner for sure. Right. But if you had just run a 50 mile race, would you change your little 
bio that says marathoner to ultra runner or would you just keep it marathoner or would you just put ask it back the question you wait you, the way you want to ask it should i change <laughs> my bio to say that i'm now an ultra runner well it's funny because i hadn't looked at it in years and i was like oh this sounds really good and then i was like oh yeah i copied what george's bio is <laughs> when we first started doing the podcast in like 2019 i was like oh yeah i got it from george well so what anyway. i would so so on this note and th this will be maybe my last word on it here and we've talked about this a little bit before we talked about it a few months ago that that you have begun you yourself, Michelle, have begun this process over the course of the last little while of doing a lot more of mountain and ultra racing, of, of focusing a lot more on things that are not road marathons, much to right. the dismay of some people that you and I both know. Like, like Adam was, Heiser? Yeah, like like the owner of ITL Coaching Performance. Every time he sees you, he comes back and is like, when are you going back to the road marathon? You're like, I got no plans to. And so maybe, yeah, you're you're better described these days as a mountain and ultra runner rather than a, a marathon. I've, uh, I've won some ultra records for sitting on the couch the last eight days also. So. <laughs> well, on that I'm note, an ultra on... coucher. <laughs> ultra coucher. <laughs> yeah, there you go. Hashtag all of the above. Um, let's, uh, let, let's quit beating around the bush then and talk about what we're talking about. So the silver rush 50 in Leadville, Colorado, um, on July 8th. Um, so now 10 days ago from when we're recording this here on July 18th, um, both of you went out there early in order to acclimate to the altitude. It's the 50 mile race that's, uh, that's, uh, affiliated with the Leadville 100, um, which, uh, I know is Michelle's single big bucket list race out there. Um, but, uh, we'll talk more about that in a little while. Both of y'all competed in a couple, uh, weeks ago. Um, let's not bury the lead. Let's just go ahead and put it out there. Let's talk about how it went. Michelle, give us the, uh, the, the six sentence summary of how it went for you. Six sentences. Um, it was awesome. I think I ran it very smart. I wish I had had more time at altitude. I would totally do it again, but I was violently ill at the end. And I just cannot talk about how awesome it was without also just talking about how absolutely miserable, sick, and I thought I was going to die the last 25 minutes. And I only... <laughs> like to talk about that all the time um because i'm i'm constantly sorry this is more than six sentences but i think i did it the recap in six sentences my main thing and we can talk about this or we can't or people that want to talk about it please let's talk about it off the podcast everything i've ever heard about ultra is like when it gets bad just keep going and you'll feel better mm -hmm. i am so convinced that i never that never would have happened i could not I could not have kept going from the state that I was in, like when I finally crossed the finish line. So that's sort of my, uh, like what would have happened, but I only had to go 50 miles and I got sick mm -hmm. the last half hour ish. So, so, so but yeah. So you're one big unanswered question from it because they always say, if you're feeling good or you're feeling bad, don't get used to it because it's going to change. Right. Right. Yeah. 100%. And so, so, so it goes for, if you're feeling good too. Um, yeah. And so, so, so your one big unanswered question from the whole thing. Yeah. Which is probably what we should have ended with rather than starting with is if you would have kept on running past the 50 mile mark, would you eventually come out of that bad patch that you were in when you cross the finish line? Never know. I will not know. Well, you will Only not if know you worked it. that two 
20,000 milligrams of salt out of your body. <laughs> <laughs> we'll get to that. We'll get to that. Um, uh, I mean, maybe you will know, Michelle, maybe when we start talking uh, after this conversation about what's next for you, maybe you will get the opportunity to find out what happens past the 50 mile mark sooner than you think. Um, um, no, I'm very happy. I feel like very, uh, as you should. Yeah, I was. Yeah, pretty thrilled. So as you should, as you should be. Eric, six sentence summary from you. So approach this differently than Michelle in some ways and similar to Michelle in some ways. Um, you know, we got out there early and we stayed after the race. This was my two week vacation and in the middle of it, we happened to run a you know, 50 mile race. <laughs> um, I say it was a grand success and not for my performance, but really for Grace's, my daughter and Melissa, my wife. Um, Grace not only finished, uh, two hours ahead of my wife and would have been about a hour behind me, but she qualified for the Leadville 100, which was the mission of us going out there. That's the only reason we, we did this race. And then Melissa, uh, finished. That's her first ultra finish. And, um, hmm. just, I'm just floored, uh, that the two of them did so well. Hmm. Um, and there was some adversity much like Michelle, um, to, to those finishes. I think, actually, I think Grace just floated through the thing. I don't, she just blows me away. Um, but I'll agree with Michelle that the race is phenomenal. The, the area is phenomenal. Um, it's not easy. It's, it's definitely difficult. Um, and I, you know, not just with their performance, but with my experience, I would, I'd go back and do it again. Very good. I'm going to be back in Leadville next year, <laughs> uh, crewing for Grace during the hundred. So, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. uh, we'll see. Mm -hmm. And, and to be clear, Eric, you didn't make it to the finish line, right? Uh, that's correct. Yeah. And, and I want to be clear too, you got pulled out of the race by the medics at about the 40 mile mark, right? Yes. Um, the cardiologist at the last aid station, uh, when I came in, I told him I need to sit down for a minute and she took a look at me and she said, you know, let's just see how Go you're doing. And, and well, I was actually sitting in the med tent because that was the only chair. <sighs> um, and I had, I had been struggling for about five miles, I think at that point. And they, um, they medically disqualified me because my uh, blood oxygen level would not come up. I was in the low, low eighties and they put me on hundred percent oxygen at that point. I guess we were at 11,000 feet or so. And my, my blood oxygen level wouldn't recover. Mm -hmm. So they actually, they actually in the med tent, they actually gave you oxygen. They put a mask on you yep. and gave you oxygen. I had, I had that oxygen for about an hour. Mm. Um, they, uh, they, I, I've never, I've never had oxygen before. It was kind of interesting. Mm -hmm. We, I didn't, I don't know if you want to get into all this now, but they, you know, they took me down the mountain in an ATV and then the, the Leadville search and rescue team took over. And the whole time I had this, you know, bottle of oxygen mm. until the search and rescue team said, Hey, we want you to put that down and we want to, check your blood oxygen level without it. Cause my blood oxygen level actually started to recover. Mm. Um, but they, they diagnosed me with HAPE, uh, high altitude pulmonary edema, which is basically liquid flowing into the air side of your lungs and preventing your lungs from absorbing oxygen into your bloodstream. And that's not something you recover from without coming out of altitude. So I would have had to go to Denver really to recover from that. And we never did. And so I, th I think the diagnosis was wrong. 
I think that the actions they took were 100% correct. And I wasn't going to argue with anybody at that point. Because um, the, the worst case would have been I, I left the aid station. I didn't make it to the finish. Right. Um, and then I'd, I was in a, I was in that like uh, dead man zone or no, no man zone because the leaders were well ahead of me. The people following me were well behind me. There, you know, there was no one around me. So if, if I, you know, if I sat down on the trail, it could have been an hour before anybody came across me. Mm. And then I'm an hour from the, you know, possible aid station or whatever. So, so yeah. Um, but that did not detract from the race, especially for the performance of Grace and Melissa and, and my own performance. Like I, I've got a, Melissa and I have a theory on what happened and, um, Melissa, my wife, and I, and it, I think I'm going to learn from it for future cases, you know, either running at altitude or not. I think there's, there's a component of this that had nothing to do with altitude. So. Very good. Yeah. I, I, I appreciate your perspective in that you look at, because you, like you said, you took two weeks. And so y'all were in Leadville, you and your family were in Leadville for a week. Yeah. You, you had the race. The race went well for two of the three of you who ran it. And for you, it went well for 75% of it. Right. Um, and, and, and then you had, yeah. And then you had, um, I wasn't counting those last five miles. Um, and then, um, and then you had, and then you had a whole nother week where y'all, y'all, uh, hiked and enjoyed, you know, the state of Colorado and all that sort of thing. And so if you right. look at like the totality of your experience, it was actually a pretty awesome two weeks, right? Oh, it was fantastic. Yeah. And people who work with me, um, I've, I have a lady who works with me and she's been working with me for about 15 years because I, she came here, she worked with me at NC State and now she works where I work now. And um, she said, she kept looking at me like, you're really going to take two weeks of vacation? Because she's never seen that. Mm -hmm. She's actually never seen me take that much vacation, but we set a goal and we said we were going to do this. And I, I had the time of my life. Like that's, that's my dream is to hang out out there. We, we hiked all over the place. Uh, we did two, uh, 14ers out there, mm -hmm. uh, Mount Massive and La Plata Peak and like, and one before the race and one after the race. And, you know, one of the things that Melissa and I and Grace decided, and we had a friend out there with us who, uh, Carrington, uh, Burton, who, uh, actually crewed for us. And we wanted her to have a good experience too. So we decided we weren't going to kill ourselves during the race so that after the race, we could continue to do things. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, uh, it worked out. We had, a, we had a good time. So yeah, in totality, that was a phenomenal experience for me. Really good. enjoyed it. Good. Very good. Very good. Now, Michelle, you said it was awesome. You said that like two or three times in your summary. Did you mean the race itself was awesome? Or are you talking about your overall Leadville going out there a week early, spending time in and around that place was awesome or both? Yeah, I would say uh, Colorado in the summer was incredible. I was kind of blown away. It's always just come to mind for me as like a, a winter place, um, a bit of a, like a winter paradise, I guess, because it's, you know, you only get once or twice a year winter sports when you grow up in Atlanta. Um, but I, I thought being out there in the summer was, was really incredible. Um, I would say that the, we were only there. I had like six days, six full days at altitude, seven full days at altitude before the race. Um, but the days like leading up to the race were pretty miserable for me. I was crazy nervous. Um, I, I think I like cried myself to sleep Wednesday and Thursday. Cause I was like, oh my gosh, I've 
put so much in this and I've been gone from Milana for like, it's going to be 10 days and I just want to go home. Like I didn't even want to do it by the time the race came. So I think when I say amazing, I'm talking about um, just the work that went in to be prepared for the race and then being able to like execute. And it was one of those weird days where I knew right away I was going to be fine, but only once I got going. Um, and when I got to halfway, I was worried about the first cutoff, but I was like 90 minutes ahead of it and I felt great. Um, yeah. And I was just kind of cruising along and um, tried to just run uh, or power hike to the terrain. And I knew my heart rate wasn't going much above like 135, 140. So I just, it was, it was really a cool experience to feel that good for, for that long. Like not to say that it wasn't hard. It was ridiculous. Some of it. Um, and, and there were like, seriously, you know, low moments that would come and go um, as would be expected in, in such a long event. But no, I just, yeah. Um, I think when like you, I went all in on this and, um, and we didn't, you know, and I, like, I came back and my neighbor was like, you told me you were going to Colorado, but you didn't say you were going to go run 50 miles. And I was like, yeah, I didn't really tell anybody I was going to. Right. We didn't, we didn't, we didn't talk miles. about it on the podcast. No, I wouldn't. Yeah. I was not yeah. willing to talk yeah, about you, it. You, um, you, would, you, would, you would put a blockade on talking about it on the podcast and that's fine. Like yeah. I, I didn't have a problem um, with that, but, but yeah, I imagine for most people who listen to our podcast regularly, like, wait a second, what? <laughs> well, I think like if people, so the people like I would, you know, show up to a Thursday run and they'd be like, so why'd you run 40 miles last weekend? And mm -hmm. so I would tell people like, as it got closer, they could tell that I was ramping up for something. Um, but just generally speaking, I, when I go back and look at my messages, I asked um, Janice even before um, Janice, your coach. this. Yeah. In January, I was like, do you think I could run 50 miles in Leadville? And she's like, immediate reply, like, sure. So I... <laughs> Like I've, this has been on my mind, um, for, for a long time. Um, so I think just to, just to be successful, like whatever that means for, you know, whatever that is on that day, it was for me on that day. So, um, so yeah, probably the race, the race is, yeah. The, well, so I, I think it's interesting just talking about the lead up to it and everything. So, you know, I, I knew you were doing it and Eric knew you were doing it. Um, right. but, but not a whole lot, like you said, not a whole lot of other people knew you were doing it. And so what that meant, um, is that when you started feeling nervous about it or when you needed to vent about it, or you had questions about it, you came to the two of us a lot and that's not a bad thing. I don't have, I'm not, I'm not complaining about that at all. Um, but, but what the reason why I do mention it is because I do feel like I have a pretty clear sense of like where your mind was prior to the race starting. Right. Yeah, it was like, probably pretty awful to. Well, it, you know, it was fine. I don't mind. Um, but, but, but what I am, what the reason why I'm bringing it up is to say that there was, I can't think of a moment in the, in the five months leading up to the race where you felt confident about it. Right. Um, and, and, and I, so I, I, yeah. I find it interesting. And you said you couldn't sleep those last couple of nights. And, and I mean, I was like, I'm, but then as soon as home. you started running all that just melted away, which is great yeah. if that's what happened, but is that what happened? Yeah, totally. I mean, I was, Good. I was like, I'd go from watching a movie, by the way, I watched two movies. Like that's how good I did of staying off my feet. Not that's like a lot like me. I watched two movies in the same week span. That's basically like a in the week leading up to the race. Yeah. But mm -hmm. I'd go from like being fine watching a movie to just like hysterically crying <laughs> and having a total hissy fit and 
I've never felt homesick before. I'm like the kid that, you know, left for summer camp in second grade and never came home um, and never missed my parents or like I have, it's the first time I've felt a little bit of homesickness. Um, but I mostly just felt so guilty for like leaving my kids because I was going to come out there and do this huge thing. And then I like, it wasn't going to work. And then what was the point? Mm. Um, so yeah, it even like makes me a little bit emotional now, but I went, I was so, um, but I, I knew like, I knew from just, um, not that you guys weren't like valuable resources, but I knew from just friends that I had seen cross over into the ultra world that like, and I've heard it for like 10 years. Like if you can do the training that Janice writes, like you can finish the race, mm-hmm. right? Like she can get you to the finish line. So mm-hmm. I, I was very confident in the mileage. I was terrified of the altitude. Mm. It's like, I felt like I could control every last thing, but just having no idea how you're going to feel um, once you get going was, I guess, a bit more than I was mm-hmm. able to deal with at the time. So, yeah. Eric, what was your mindset? But yeah, that's exactly what it was like. Eric, Eric, what was your mindset in the months leading up to the race? I, I think it was a special case for me because I wasn't really there for myself. Right. You know, that I wanted to run the race. I wanted to do well at the race, but I really wanted Grace to to qualify for the hundred. So she had to, basically she had to finish. And then I wanted Melissa to finish her first ultra. And I was like, gosh, Melissa, you picked the worst possible 50 miler to make as your first like ultra finish, but you know, um, she did. So I, I don't, I wasn't really nervous about the whole thing. I think in the, I did message Lee, um, friend of the podcast, Lee Ragsdale, because I think the night before or the day before it kind of hit me, crap, I haven't even really been thinking about this. Like I've been like trying to make sure that Melissa's and Grace's experience and their, their training leading up to it and the experience and like the taper and all that was ready. And then all of a sudden it was like, Oh shit, I got to run this race too. (laughs) (laughs) And, and I, and I actually, you know, I, I decided, um, well, Grace and I talked and Melissa Grace and I talked and I said, Grace, I'm going to run the, I'm going to start the race with you. Um, and we ran the first quarter of the race together and that was purely intentional. One, the entire first quarter to run with her, to get her kind of feet moving, get her stabilized Two, to not like blow myself out of the water, right? Like to go out too hard, but three, not to run the whole race with her. So she would have that experience of running three quarters of the race by herself. And because Grace and I talked, she performs better at times when she is by herself and she can get like in her own space and she doesn't have someone there to, to lean on. And and we talked through all that. So I, I think I was so focused on all that stuff that, you know, I didn't really think about the race or get nervous about it until the day before was, and was, we were doing all that stuff. I mean, shoot, we climbed a, you know, it was a third, it was a 14 hour hike Sunday before the race. Mm-hmm. On Saturday, we we went and hiked the 14er, and it was a 14 mile hike. And that's, you know, it's I, I don't even remember the elevation change, but it was some like 5,000 feet of elevation change, or maybe it was yeah, I think that's what it was. And you know, we went through a blizzard at the top of the mountain and all that, and so there was just so much going on. Mm-hmm. You know, do, I, do I was confident you, do you think in one that, thing though. Okay, tell me. 
the, the one thing I was super confident in was my training. Because I've never focused so much effort and felt like I understood what had to be done coming into a race. And if you look, you know, Strava doesn't tell the whole story, but if you look at my Strava, you'll see a three-week taper. I have never been so confident coming into an event that I would take a three, like I would actually take three weeks to taper. Mm -hmm. I'm always doing something dumb in the last, like, two or three weeks because like I'm like, the, oh, like, like, like a 14 for... hour hike or something you mean <laughs> stop, stop. <laughs> but no there's always something like um like some workout some run workout or something i'm trying to like oh i, I should have done this like but i was real confident in that and i was confident that melissa and grace had done the done the work also um so 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 you weren't you weren't totally focused on it but you did feel good about your training oh yeah okay yeah from the sense of like what my controllables were and I'm, I'm i think i'm building into like what went wrong right like what went wrong during my race but like michelle said she was controlling everything she could control so like i did um thousand foot workouts as often as i could and to get a thousand feet of you know elevation change during a, a run in raleigh that's less than 15 miles is kind of tough mm-hmm. um and i was I had learned that going uphill is great, but you've got to beat yourself up going downhill, right? Oh so I worked that into my workouts. Mm-hmm. And then I actually had, I actually did strength workouts, right? Mm-hmm. Leading up mm-hmm. to this where I was doing um, squats, you know, not overweighting them, but doing enough. Like, and I, I was talking to a friend of the podcast, Lee Ragsdale again. I was talking to him this morning. I said, time on feet is what gets you through these ultras. So, I stopped riding the bike. You guys will notice I didn't Zwift for six weeks leading up to this, maybe seven, because I said I need to have time on feet. So I, I did like very conscious, deliberate things in my training. And I felt like coming into this race from a physical standpoint, I'm ready. Mm-hmm. The wild card was altitude, mm-hmm. like like Michelle uh, mentioned. Um, I think at the end of the day, I don't think altitude was really the huge uh, differentiator think I think that you can I think that you can train for that um, and get used to not having a lot of oxygen in your blood mm-hmm. even at 300 feet um, but it did play into I think the result so mm-hmm. well, well let's let's talk about altitude then because because both of you all have talked about that already and and that's obviously that's a big deal at Leadville I mean it starts at 10,000 feet is that right 10 yeah, it's ten thousand yeah. one hundred feet, basically. Yeah, yeah, ten one fifty two, I think. Yeah, right and then it and it goes up from there, and the highest point is around like thirteen thousand feet, right? No, no, you go up and over twelve thousand feet four times, but okay. just over twelve thousand feet. Okay, it has gotcha. about seven thousand feet total um, elevation gain throughout the gotcha. fifty miles. Gotcha. And so, Michelle, you said I know that you did a lot of training at elemental altitude. Um, and, and you said when you were first starting to talk about the race that you wish you had spent more time at altitude, um, talk to us a little bit about, and then Eric, I'm basically going to ask you the same thing. Talk to us a little bit about like how the altitude, how it worked on you during the race and, and what you kind of learned about racing at altitude and maybe training for races at altitude when you don't live at altitude. So I did, um, I had one workout a week. Um, Janice felt like, you know, a good way to prepare for going from where we are to high altitude is 
like fast running, just whatever we can do to kind of strip the muscles of, of oxygen um, and still be working hard. So mm. I took that workout indoors um, and I did it at the elemental altitude facility up in Roswell. Uh, that room sits at 10,000 feet. So that just gave me um, a good idea of kind of what it felt like to work hard, what my numbers would look like at altitude, but also just the okay, you're fine. Cause Chuck's always, um, you know, Chuck right there next to you when you're working out. So even if your blood saturation level is, is pretty low, like he would be like, well, you could sustain this for X number of hours. So I had the, the feeling of, you know, what it would be like to work really hard at altitude. Um, when I say, I wish we had gone out there longer, we went to Vail first and that's at 8,100 feet. And I, the jump from 8,100 feet just to Leadville, downtown Leadville, um, at about 10,152 feet. Eric's probably right. The starting line was a little bit lower, so probably like 10,000. Um, well, it is. If I think about where we were at the hotel You're versus right. the park, You're right? right. Yeah. Like Main Street is 10,152. So. Right. But we the parking lot was a little bit lower. So anyway, um, it, was, it felt like a whole new... Uh, acclimation need. Um, we were in a hotel that just for two, it didn't have an elevator. So just walking up the steps and I was crazy out of breath, uh, right when we got there. So I think at some point I noticed when we were in Vail that the type of headache that I always have when I ski, which I would just medicate. Um, and I had, and I was crazy swollen. Uh, my fingers, like I took off my rings. It took me weeks, weeks. Well, it hasn't been weeks, but probably like they were off total for 10 or 12 days just because my fingers were so swollen. So I noticed that dissipating by about the fifth or sixth day at altitude. And that gave me a lot of confidence. I was also watching the blood oxygen levels on my watch, which wasn't amazing, but I did also bring um, like a pulse ox with me. So, but at some point, once I saw the numbers like between 95 and hundred up at altitude, I just stopped checking the numbers. Um, George, you had sent us a message, I think, early on, maybe maybe when I finally got out there um, and was like, don't read too much into those numbers. So I didn't want to overthink them, but I had some confidence that I was, you know, I had, I was just trying to be thankful for the week that I had had out there before the race. And ultimately, like, that was the best that it was going to be. And my body would kind of do what it was going to do. And then just during the race, I was really careful to never get my respiratory rate too high. Hmm. My heart rate was never such an issue, even at elemental altitude, but it was just, if you're running at like, you know, uh, easy or conversational pace for the heart rate, but you're at altitude and your respirations are like double what they would be at sea level, wherever we live. Um, that was what I was most nervous about. So I just controlled my effort, like literally just ran based on effort and then the big climbs were, you know, on the way back, we had like a five mile uphill basically um, from miles like 16 left down to 11 left. And, you know, this is just power hiking, right? And, and everybody's and everybody's power hiking. So I was never busting my balls to like run up the hills. I was never running up the mountains there. Mm -hmm. um, and I didn't plan to, I, I knew that it wouldn't, I wouldn't be able to. So, mm -hmm. but yeah, it was, so um, so when, when you say you wish you would have had more time at altitude, yeah. what do you think, if you would have gone out there two weeks ahead of time, which is yeah. unreasonable given the fact that we are more than just runners. Yeah. Uh, but if you would have had two weeks to go out there, I mean, what do you think what the difference would have been? 
I think I would have just been able to run a little bit harder. And I actually do think um, when I think about things I would do differently, I think now that I know that I can do what I did, that it, it would have been, I could have gambled a little bit more like with mm. the effort um, and, and just, and run just a little bit harder, like maybe more um, feeling like I was kind of really going for it in a race, not, not all the points, but um, I mean, I think ideally, you know, go up and spend some time up in Leadville, up in the 10, 12,000 feet, but then come back down also, right? Because when you go up to acclimate, part of what's happening is you're also like destroying the red blood cells. So if you went back down to, you know, Denver, the Boulder area, like you can recover a little and then go back up. Um, mm -hmm. So I think that's what I would, that's what I would do differently. But again, time, um, money, like we were really fortunate to have a free place to stay in Vail. You can't really beat that. Um, so I'm, I would, I would say I want to go minimum two weeks next time. Hmm. And I would want to go right up to Leadville. Hmm. So, Very good. Yeah. Eric, talk to us about altitude. So it's, it's obvious the second you get to Leadville and get out of the car that the air is thinner. Mm -hmm. And we did a couple of jogs, walks, and you feel it right away. Um, after being there for two weeks though, after having done two 14ers, run the race, I went for a run. It was a you know, eight mile run. And the first five miles are all uphill. Pretty much everywhere you run in Leadville is uphill. I know, that is so true. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, went, I went running on this, they have a trail called the Mineral Belt Trail and it's an 11 mile loop. And I just, I just went up to the five or six mile point and then cut cut the corner back down, but I didn't feel any better. I didn't, uh, I certainly didn't feel like confident that like I could run at that altitude. You know, my watch is telling me, oh, you're altitude acclimated to 9,500 feet. Well, I'm only at 10.15 running to 10.25, you know, on this run maybe. And that, I didn't feel like I was acclimated at all. So yeah. I hear what Michelle's saying. I hear what other people say, but it certainly didn't feel like I, like being there the 10 days before the race. Yeah, I was going to say, because Michelle there. went out seven days before, you went out 10 days before, just to be clear, right? Right. Yeah. right. And at the seven-day point, I did a little check workout, like to see how I felt. And I I mean, I was destroyed. Mm -hmm. I, I think I messaged you guys that you I, did. I did this just for fun, like to see what it was like. And I could only get through half the workout. Mm -hmm. And it was like, I was like frothing at the mouth and I was, my legs didn't hurt because I, I was not working hard. Right. Mm -hmm. But my, my lungs and my cardio couldn't, couldn't handle the effort. Mm -hmm. So, so I'm not sure about the, the, um, the, the transition time or whatever. I'll say this. I think if you're running a marathon, it's going to make a huge difference. If you're running a 5K, it's going to make an even bigger difference. Mm -hmm. If you're trying to run a mile, it's going to make an even bigger difference. But I think as we get to the point where we're doing an ultra and you're actually keeping your effort level down in the fully aerobic, the differential between what's fully aerobic and then what you can do and stay aerobic for um, an ultra, like that differential in pace is pretty small when you're working in the more anaerobic range, like 
you've tipped over the edge and everything just falls apart. Sure. So, sure. And, and, and Chuck always says that whenever we go train at elemental altitude, he always encourages you to do the hard stuff because that's where the differential is greatest. Right. Yeah. And, and because the differential is greatest there, that's where you're pres presumably achieving the most benefit. Um, yeah. And, and so I'm not when, saying yeah. show up the day before the race and just do it. I'm not, because I think there is a huge benefit to getting out there and seeing what it, or, or feeling it, mm -hmm. understanding it a little bit, like, like this is how it's going to feel. So, so your, so your point, Eric, is that, or it sounds like what you're saying is that it's good to go out there early so that you'll know what it feels like to try and run at altitude, but exactly. there's no way to actually adjust to it. Well, none of us have a month to go out there and mm -hmm. well, very few people have a month to go out there and do that unless they're, you know, a professional athlete. So right. like, and that's not even, this is the crazy thing. No one does that. Mm -hmm. <laughs> like, that's, that's not the point. They, they right. train at altitude to run at sea level. Right. Yeah, <laughs> you don't you train know, at altitude to run at altitude. So I, I will say, I just want to comment on something Eric said before about um, picking like a really hard 50 miler for the first 50 miler. I love Colorado and its people, but I cannot tell you how many times I was told, whether in Vail or Leadville, that you can't run here. You can't run at this altitude. You won't <laughs> yeah. be able to breathe. People from yeah. Atlanta don't come here to run our races. Like, have you been out here all summer? Like, I must have heard this half a dozen times, you know, mm -hmm. leading up to the race. Um, and it You're was like, like th thank you, everyone. As if I wasn't nervous enough already. <laughs> right. But to what exactly. Eric said, like people, middle fingers for all of yeah. you. <laughs> I mean, we were every single person I met or spoke to during the race was from the area. Maybe not as high as Leadville, but, you know, Fort Collins, Denver, like men's turn, you know, they, they were close enough that they did some of their training above 10,000 feet. Yeah. Um, I didn't meet anybody else from. <laughs> or at from least at six it's, or 8,000 feet. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Like we but came those from people suffered also. But, the, but I want to tell you like, and we can talk about this more, the people, the most people that I saw like just killed over or fully stopped on the way back were like I, they were all Colorado. They, they, they train five or 6,000 feet. I don't know that it's that much better. Like there's just a well, difference. Maybe it you're... gave them, maybe it gave them a false sense of security that you didn't have. Um, um, you know, I, I, I think it's interesting. My, my sister, um, works for the department of justice. Um, she's the head of the Latin American affairs division for the department of justice. She lives in Panama city, Panama. Um, and, but she travels throughout Latin America a great deal. And she, she has to sometimes go to La Paz, Bolivia. Um, and La Paz, Bolivia, as you probably know, is the highest altitude capital city in the world at 11,800 feet is, is where La Paz, Bolivia is altitude wise. And, and my sister has said, when you go there, she said, the pace is just slower. She said, because it's so high and the air is so thin that like people just don't walk as fast and people don't go yeah. up the stairs as quickly. And these are people who live there. Sure. Right. Yeah. Um, but but she said it's just everything feels slower and everything takes longer there because nobody moves quickly. Literally, nobody physically moves quickly. And so that makes me think about Eric's Eric's assertion that maybe it is impossible to actually acclimate to 10,000 feet. So you know? or it's unnecessary. Yeah. I mean, if, if you can't, then it is unnecessary, right? And I'll go ahead and tie this into, you know, what 
and I don't know if you had a line of questions that we're going to get here, but I'll go ahead and get there now. It's like, what happened? Why, why I stepped off the course at mile 40? Um, like I said, I feel like I physically prepared for this race better than I've probably prepared for any race, any Blue Ridge Relay, any other ultra I've done. I went into it with a, a pretty good plan. I didn't blow myself up the first quarter of the race for sure. I ran with grace. And I'll tell you, at the halfway point, I felt really good coming out of the halfway point, I felt really good. Um, but in the, in the stretch between the second to last and the last aid station, it's a, Michelle, correct me if I'm wrong, it's a four mile completely exposed, it's the heat of the day, um, uphill, right? And you actually start on asphalt, I think, and then it turns into gravel or like a dirt gravel road. And it's just going up to 12,000 feet. And about three quarters of the way up that, now the wheels started to come off and I could tell. Um, I had consistently been passing people at every every point of the race and I'd kind of found this group that I was kind of going back and forth with at the different aid stations and, or sorry, at the different points in the race. And that last like three quarters of a mile, mile to the peak, they all just went by me. And I felt like I had hit slow motion and then I kept saying, well, when I turn the corner, I'm going to go downhill and I'm going to, you know, I'll, I'll get going again. And that didn't happen. Um, I could run for about 30 seconds and then I felt like I had nothing left. And as soon as I stopped, I almost felt like I was going to pass out. And so I basically walked into the aid station and then I told you what happened when I got there. But one of the interesting things is, you know, my oxygen level was 82. They put me on oxygen. I was on oxygen for 30, 45 minutes, um, got down to the search and rescue guys. And so they're EMTs, there's three of them. And they're looking at me and they're, I'm like, so what do you think happened? Like, and the guys are like, well, you know, we're just think we think it's tape. And they said, but the problem is like, when you breathe in and out, we don't hear it because they were listening to your lungs. And if you've got hate, you've got liquid in your lungs and they'll hear it. it sounds like, right. uh, like crackling. And I said, so what could it be? And he's like, oh, well, it could be asthma. It could be this. And then they checked my blood oxygen level again, and it's at 96. The guy's like, okay, we need to take you off oxygen and see if it'll stay there. And they took me off the oxygen and 95, 96 for the rest of the time we're sitting there. The reason I tell you that story is that the, the, the three MTs working on me and then the two that came up the road in the ambulance to take me down to the bottom, they said our blood oxygen level never gets over 92. They said, the fact that you're sitting here at 95, 96% blood oxygen level tells us that something else happened, basically. And it also is kind of amazing because we, you know, our, our 20, or late 20, early 30-year-olds don't ever get over 92. And two of them said, I don't think living in Leadville is good for you. A lot of people think, say that. <laughs> yeah, they, they said the cardiopulmonary stress that that environment puts on your body and possibly, you know, you're just mentioning about La Paz, Bolivia is not good for you. Like humans were not designed to live here. Yeah. It gives us this adaptation, but it doesn't necessarily make us better at running here. Yeah. I think the sweet spot for endurance athletes is about 7,000 feet. Um, to, to, but, to live and train. Yeah. Yeah. Live high and train low. Not yeah. even, not even trained there all the time. So, mm -hmm. yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. So, mm -hmm. but I, you know, like, well, so, so Eric, then you said you and Melissa have a theory about what happened. 
what is your theory? So we've got two. And one is based on what happened and like what we saw. And then the second one is based on a previous experience I've had that George, you actually witnessed. Um, Melissa said, look, you prepared for this. You were obviously ready for it. I can, I can tell, and I've told everybody, I've never finished a 40 mile run at that type of, on that type of terrain and felt as good as I did. I, I had no muscle soreness. Um, you mean you felt as good as you did the next day? The next day. Okay, I got you. I was, <laughs> I was worn out the day of the race, but I was never sore. Mm-hmm. And that, this is one of the things that confused me. Is like I'm at mile 40 of a 50-mile race, and if I could get my lungs working again, I felt like I could sprint down the mountain. So physically, I really I did a great job preparing myself. Um, what Melissa brought up to me, and I kind of agree with, is that the uncontrollable part, the cardiopulmonary part, didn't keep up. Like the differential between those two things was too far. So although I felt good, I felt like I was controlling my pace because, like I said, I had a whole other week out there. I didn't want to lay on the couch that whole week. Um, I felt like I was doing all the right stuff, but I was still outpacing my cardiopulmonary. And eventually I dug myself into a hole late in the race that I couldn't like I couldn't recover from. So you ran too hard? Is that what you're saying? Yeah. Not too hard for my physical condition, but too hard for my physical condition matched with the the adaptation that my cardiopulmonary was able to do at altitude. Okay. Okay. So so, so maybe another week. Too hard hard for 10 10 to 12,000 feet, but not too hard for Raleigh. Right. And that played out because, like I said, I did not feel sore. The next day I felt fine. Two days later I was running. Mm -hmm. Like that doesn't, that's not typically what happens after an ultra. this, so that's the first thing. The second thing is um, I outpaced my crew um, and they were they would have met me at the second to last aid station. And what Eric, who is supporting and Carrington, who is supporting me, um, were doing when I came into the aid stations is they were providing me liquid and refilling my liquid. And what I missed at the last aid station was um, I had to do all that myself. And instead of draining the two bottles I had, refilling them, drinking, and then moving on, I just refilled the bottles and moved on. And that's the longest stretch between two aid stations. And it's also the most exposed and it's hard because you're going up and it's, it's at 12,000 feet. And I think I also uh, extremely dehydrated myself. Mm. And this I just started thinking about recently because I, I mentioned this has happened to me once before, and it was, I think it was three years ago at Blue Ridge Relay. Mm-hmm. Um, I had a similar experience on the last leg I ran in the Blue Ridge Relay. It was like a flat, the second half of the leg was all flat and I couldn't run. It was kind of the same thing. I could run like for a minute and then I had to walk. And every time I stopped, I felt like I was gonna pass out. I think that was partial like serious dehydration. Mm-hmm. And if, I, I, I don't know if this, makes sense to a medical professional, but if your blood volume's super low and you're at altitude and now your blood pressure's really low and now like I see how that could affect your ability to ingest, you know, get oxygen into your blood. Sure. And, you know, it kind of played out as when I was running, I could, I felt like, okay, I'm all right. I'm right, but I'm not getting enough oxygen. So I'm not generating the energy I need to continue. So I stop. And when I stop, blood pressure drops off, heart rate drops off, and then I feel dizzy and faint and like crap. So I can see how that played out. 
So I think the second aspect of this was I just got horribly dehydrated. Mm -hmm. And it could be both then, those things, right? I mean, you, you, right. you it, it may be that you weren't horribly dehydrated, but you were slightly dehydrated. Um, and at and, altitude, and, it was and, exasperated. Yeah, exactly. Um, and the, the, that, the, the consequences of becoming slightly dehydrated um, or over dehydrated um, right. were, were more catastrophic at 11,000 feet than they would have been at 5,000 right. feet or one. Because I sat there in the aid station and I just kept drinking. They kept bringing me drinks. I kept drinking, drinking, drinking. Mm -hmm. Then they took me down about halfway down the course. And all of a sudden my blood oxygen levels at 95, 96. Mm -hmm. And the EMTs were like, like wh what happened? Mm -hmm. Like what changed? <laughs> I probably had about <laughs> uh, half a gallon of water and Coke and stuff. And mm -hmm. so I, I can see how that played out. Hmm. Um, not to say that if the same thing happened to me again, I wouldn't just say, yeah, take me off the course because again, it was the right decision based on the indications. So. Right. Right. So, so let's talk then about, about hydration and nutrition. And cause you know, I, I think that hydration, nutrition, weather and shoes, those are the other things that I still had on my <laughs> list to talk about. Of course, of course we have to talk about shoes. Right. Um, but, but. Uh, Michelle, we've had a couple of conversations about your nutrition over the course of the the last ten days since you finished the race. Tell us a little bit about your nutrition plan and how you feel it went, and and what obstacles you faced. Yeah, so I would say that um, I fueled very similar to like what I did um, in January at Mountain Miss. I had taken um, a bit more, I would say, uh, when I was doing training runs here, I would take like a scratch sorry, I would take a scoop and a half of scratch hydration per like 15 ounces of water, just because it was so humid. And it was, uh, like obviously so hot, especially those last few runs I did on winding Sarah, North Georgia. Um, I went back to just like one scoop of scratch per soft flask. Um, so the goal was to try to fuel primary as much as I could with liquids, but there are these long stretches where you're not going to get a refill on the scratch, or if you don't have a crew and you don't have it, you're going to just have water. Um, and the goal was to get in about 50 grams of carbohydrates per hour. And also just with, with the ballpark of losing, um, about like a thousand milligrams of sodium per hour, my goal was to replace, um, half of it. And if it was like a little bit more than that, then don't worry about it, but that's way better than, than being undersalted. So I think what we, basically calculated was I had about 2,280 grams of sodium from scratch and an additional 4,730 from the salt pills. So if that is basically right at 6,900, 7,000, and if I was out there for 13 hours, then I think I was, I almost nailed the 50% of sodium loss. Mm -hmm, um, I had a really hard time the second half with wanting anything with any flavor, um, which is really interesting. This is like a side note. I was listening to this podcast by one of the scientists at Morton, and they said that the most common thing they heard from ultra runners about what flavor they wanted their fueling to be was they didn't want any flavor. Hmm. Um, and I hadn't really thought about that, but when I got to mile 34, which was the last aid station where we had our crew, um, which is right before what Eric described this like hellacious, uh, you go from, it's a nine miles, basically a five mile fully exposed climb and then four miles downhill to the, to the last aid station. And 
I understand on the way out why there's no aid station because it's a, it's a huge trek downhill and then you're going to meet your crew. But on the way back with the, with the sun and the climb uphill, it just felt like there should have been an aid station out there somewhere. Anyway, so, how, so, so this, quick, so quick side note, how yeah. many aid stations total were there then? There was enough. It was just that one stretch on the way back that, um, people were really suffering there. So I would just say that I took as many Morton gels from my crew when I saw them for the last time. And it just wasn't enough. I got to the point where I didn't want anything else. I tried to eat both like a scratch rice cake and a bar on this long exposed climb. And you're not, you're just hiking. So it should be pretty easy to eat a bar, but I just, I couldn't, my mouth was too dry and it was too hard to chew and I didn't want it. Um, and I was out of the gels when I got to the last aid station is where I think I made like a fatal mistake. Um, I, I knew from the athletes guide going into the race that the fuel on course was goo brand. And I think I probably sent a message to you guys like, Oh, look, goo Roctane. That's the surefire way many, GI health. Many yeah. messages. <laughs> yeah. Many messages about how much I hate goo products, goo brand products. Um, anyways, but I, I was out of anything that I felt like I could stomach and I knew that I had seven miles left. So I had like a sip of Coke in one hand, a sip of ginger ale in the other, took a handful of like Lay's potato chips and then just grabbed some of the goo stuff, um, and just kind of ate a little bit of all of it. Um, spacing out the actual goo stuff from leaving the aid station, but and it could be, I know you guys think I oversalted. Um, it could be that everything just caught up with me at the end, right? And it had nothing to do with um, the goo products or the potato chips or the Coke or ginger ale. I will never really know, <laughs> to be honest. Um, Janice made a good point. She was like, okay, but what if you would undersalt it and just felt horrible the whole time? Sure. So, um, yeah. Yeah. You know, to, I... to, to, be, to be clear, like, we, we we have in all the the debriefing that we've done we've questioned the amount of salt that you took in not because we 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 were we were trying to throw shade on your finish um uh and also not necessarily because we were trying to say that that's the reason why you felt so bad in the last 25 minutes but rather because you were so swollen oh yeah for, for the next five or six days after the yeah. finish and yeah, so, so, so both Eric awful. and I kind of said, well, maybe that has to do with the amount of salt yeah, that you took. No, in. I agree. Um, yeah. And and so that, that I think is more what we were thinking about when it came to salt. But I, I also think though, that what you're describing, that you kind of got to that last aid station and you're kind of sick of all the stuff you had. You're sick of following the plan. The plan <laughs> sucks. Right. And so you're just like, I'm going to take some of this and some of this. I'm going to take, I think that's the reason why you felt like crap in the last 25 minutes. I, um, I, yeah. and, 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 I, I'm not, and I'm not going to beat you up about it at all. Cause I totally get where your mind was at that point. But, I, but I think that as soon as you kind of got off of the sort of more disciplined nutrition plan and you just kind of threw together a few things, that's where, Bad. that that's where yeah. you end up kind of running into problems. That's what I think. Yeah. So um, I think, you know, I, I think being able to take in 50 grams of carbs per hour took, um, you know, I, I really trained to be able to do that. I think I did that pretty well. Um, if I could perfectly take in 25 ounces of water, you know, uh, per hour, I could nail like all of the science and all the numbers, but I just can't do that. You know, the first, um, the so how much water seven, were you taking in? You mentioned drinking the scratch, but how much water were you taking in? 
Yeah, I was never like over the course of 13 hours, I I probably averaged um probably closer to like 20 to 22 ounces per hour. Oh, wow. Um mostly just because which is not a lot. It's well, I'm not absorbing the water. I I was nervous to overhydrate. I think mm -hmm. I've I've like overhydrated in the past and just putting water in without any type of salt or potassium, I thought would be very bad for me. But, you know, from 6 to 8 a.m., it was pretty cool. And it was, we were climbing the first 11 miles, but from one to seven was like more of a runnable climb. Um, so it was almost like an hour and 51 minutes, which is what it took me the first seven miles. And I hadn't even gone through two flasks. Hmm. So I was already behind on fluids, but Fla at the time- flasks are, flasks are like 12 ounces, right? 15, yeah. 15, okay. A soft flask. So, you know, I was a little bit behind and that threw me off a little bit, but yeah, I mean- you do the best with kind of what you can. Um, and I just fell apart the last seven miles. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Eric, talk to us about your nutrition. I had a, this is a new plan for me. Um, I decided that I was going to basically eat something every like 20, 25 minutes. So I, I was eating and I, I just had, I carried a sort of a, a grouping of things. I had some picky bars. I had some cliff bars, um, stroop waffles. I, I think I had something else too, but I, I just took like quarter bites and chewed them while I was moving. Um, the, the point being that I wanted to, I wanted to keep from creating a gut bomb. You know, like yeah, coming totally. into an aid station and eating a bunch. And I've always mm -hmm. sort of treated it like that. Yeah. But the pace of an ultra allows you the flexibility to eat slowly. Mm -hmm. um, and it was a little difficult uh, breathing at 12,000 feet and eating. Yeah, with something and, in your mouth. Yeah. With something kind of dry. <laughs> um, but I, I figured it out and I just like stuck it in my cheek, took a sip, like s sopped it up a little bit with some some liquid. And then I was able to chew it and swallow it but the the point being like it was a different tactic for me rather than trying to eat mm -hmm. that whole bar at a stop or something i just kind of nibbled on it and that worked out really really well for me um i'm not faulting the you know my crew or anything but the fact that they fell behind me because they were they were there primarily i told carrington you were here to support grace and melissa right. Right. Um, the fact that they fell behind me kind of canned that plan because um, you go through two aid stations to get to the last aid station where you get support. And they also changed. This was this was stupid. And I, I'm sure Michelle heard of this, too. They made them park almost two miles from the aid station. That was crazy. Because on the way out, people the crew. Were, they, yes. Yeah, they were making people oh, man. on the on the outbound legs. People weren't listening, I guess, to the parking instructions and they clogged up the road and they prevented an ambulance from getting to yeah. the aid station printer boys. So they made a change and they forced people to park way down the road. And I think Eric got a pickup truck to get him to the, the aid station in Carrington. I don't know how she figured it out, but she missed me by like three minutes. She literally missed me by like three minutes. So it wasn't for lack of trying. Point being, my they didn't have what I had been eating the whole race when I came to that last aid station. So I just grabbed what was there and it didn't really appeal to me. So I it didn't, was all I didn't awful. eat it. Yeah. All it, of it. It, it was, it was just awful. It wasn't great. 
but I didn't get sick. You know, I don't feel like uh, fueling was an issue. I've already mentioned hydration became an issue, I think, near the end of the race. Um, but yeah, fueling and I think my fueling plan was pretty good. It just, you know, the, the crew thing kind of canned it because I didn't want what the mm. course had to offer. Mm -hmm. I tried to recover by just drinking some ginger ale cups and Coke cups. But, you know, I'm going to say this. If you're an ultra race director, stop with this bullshit of filling up the cup with like less than half a shot's worth of Coke because <laughs> nobody wants that. Right. And I'm sitting there and I'm drinking like six of these. I'm in the <laughs> middle of a race. My brain is in, is complete mush. And then I move on and I don't actually get what I need. Right. Mm -hmm. Like if somebody wants that, let them have that. But that is doing nothing for you. That's like mm -hmm. 10 calories. Yeah. It's just stupid. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. that kind of pissed me off. But mm -hmm. I think it's interesting. I mean, you know, a lot of um, a lot of ultra races and certainly not this one, though, they have a lot of aid stations so that you can check in with your crew a lot and so that you can have a really uh robust nutrition plan right right um right. and and like a lot of a lot of ultra races when you read about them on paper they seem so boring because they're like laps around a one mile loop or something like that right but like <laughs> laps like like the hundred that you did or the 24 hour race that you did a few months ago eric right the the like, it sounds like, oh, my God, can you imagine doing like, well, that's actually kind of awesome because you have an it's aid phenomenal. station every mile, right? Yeah. And if um, you want to test, so that, that, that is something that I would say, if you want to test out a hydration and fueling plan, do one of those races. Yeah. Because it gives you the opportunity to see what works. You can break it up and say, okay, well, I'm not going to eat anything for five miles. And then, like, it gives you the opportunity to do that. So I agree. But, but like, but, but. Michelle finds herself on the trail out there with a whole bunch of stuff that she doesn't really want to eat um, and that she doesn't really want to fuel with. Right. If, if there had been an aid station right there, she could have like switched it out and gotten some stuff that maybe she did want to eat. Right. right. Maybe something that, that did appeal to her a little bit more. Um, and, and that would, but, but instead she was at the whims of whatever garbage they happened to have there at the last aid station, which is not something that really worked for her all that well. And they would say, well, at printer boy, you should have just grabbed extra food from your crew because you knew you didn't want something. Printer boy is the name station. of the aid station. The yeah, second that to was, last aid yeah. station, yeah. right? And my answer to that is, but my brain is mush and you right. made my crew park two miles from the, <laughs> from the aid station. Yeah. I mean, yeah. like, what are you, what are you thinking? All right. So All you right. need just, yeah. So. All right. Um, I right, choose Michelle, both y'all, did you both y'all wear endorphin edges? We did. We did. All right. I, so, uh, so the, I, I say as somebody who disordered another pair of endorphin edge on sale. Um, uh, so I am now stocking a pair and rocking a pair. Did they work for you, Michelle? My feet were just so fabulous. Not only did they work, I took a pair out there that had like, I don't know, close to 300 miles, but I sent another pair to my friend in Vail because um, I figured I would just kind of take a pair and leave a pair out there and wear a new pair for the race as long as I had a chance to break them in. I never thought about my feet during the race. Not only that, but to be so hot and so um, depleted and my socks and my shoes are completely dry at the end of this race, hmm. right? Like you can't even go for a seven mile run this time of year in Atlanta without squish, squish, squish from the sweat. But because you're running like high altitude desert, everything is so dry. 
Um, so the shoes just went from like, these are amazing shoes to these are just even more amazing when you're in a dry climate and you don't have to worry about the humidity. Mm. So yeah, I'm sad. It doesn't seem like, um, Saucony is going to keep the edge going. They've kind of switched, um, the trail shoe for the endorphin line. So I'm happy to have a relatively new pair. I guess they have 50 miles on them. I don't know. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, but yeah, I think they're just a fabulous shoe. I was really happy um, to be in them. The The terrain wasn't, um, it wasn't super technical. Like there are parts of it where I think you could have worn a really robust road shoe. Like I definitely saw a bunch of Hoka Clifton's out there, but I was happy to have on a trail shoe and I was happy to have the lugs on some of you know, there were like, I think outbound miles, the two miles after we saw our crew for the first time, this is crazy. 17, 18 were crazy steep miles, just much steeper than any other part of the course. And I just remember a few of the places I put my foot were, were wet and I was happy to just like kind of have that grip with the lug. Mm -hmm. So yeah. And like no complaints from the shoes, just more uh, admiration for a great shoe. So we we should say the the other side of that it's dry and not humid so you're not completely covered in sweat <laughs> the other side of that coin is that maybe if eric had been sweating more the way he's accustomed to in humid weather maybe that would have clued him in that he needed to drink more and that he was starting to become dehydrated uh, right yeah oh, right. i mean yeah it's really yeah. hard to to judge that it's a yeah. whole that's a whole new experience of um, you know, when I was working on nutrition stuff, I was told like, you're not, you're not going to feel like it's happening, but you are going to lose a similar amount of fluid and sweat loss right. at altitude, especially if it's hot, but you're not going to feel it. You're not going to be your clothes because, aren't because it's evaporating the way right. it's what it's supposed right. to, right. Exactly. As, as opposed to here in the American South where it's 100% humidity and it yeah. just sits on your body as if you just stepped out of the shower. Yeah. Cause right. it doesn't evaporate. Yeah. yeah. So. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I went for a 10 mile run on Saturday, I think it was. And I, I, I leaned over at the end of the run and it was like, it was raining, mm -hmm. you know, stuff my body just coming off my body raining. Oh, yeah. And yeah. I was like, I never experienced this in Colorado. Mm -hmm. And that's your, it's probably a really good point. Um, that that's a flag to me. Like I know I need to hydrate cause I ran back to my car twice during that run to refill my bottle or to drink. Um, but to the, to the point of the shoes, so I, I wore the same shoes. I, in fact, I wore the same shoes that I wore during Mountain Mist, and I don't think I had worn them since Mountain Mist. Hmm. And I'll say this, and you guys saw the pictures, I destroyed the bottom of one of those shoes. Yeah. And it was a similar, not the same, but a similar failure that happened to another pair of endorphin edges. And I was really surprised about that. Um, it looks I'm like obvious. so so from the pictures you showed us it looks like literally someone took a knife and just sliced the bottom into the outer of your shoe right um, right yeah. and i would say partially it's the way i run I, I tend to use the rocks as a steady surface i don't like um, footfalls on um on uh, sandy or loose dirt so going down the hills and i was running down the hills i was picking rocks to go from you know one foot to the next and possibly that tore up the shoe, but I just don't see how a shoe with less than a hundred miles on it, or even 200 miles on it, if it's a, even if it's a race shoe, an off-road race shoe should blow up like that. But that shoe is worthless. Like that is not, that shoe cannot be worn anymore based on what happened to it. Cause it tore mm -hmm. the outsole and up into the, the foam. Mm -hmm. 
Mm-hmm. So, yeah, you know, I, I, I really love the shoe. I think that's also a big portion of why I'm not sore. Mm-hmm. It has great grip. Agree. It's a fast shoe. It's, it's very stable. I never felt like I was slipping around to Michelle's point. You no, know, I didn't feel like I was sloshing around either in the shoe. I really like that shoe. I do not like the way the outer shredded on that course. <laughs> but yeah, but there's something about the outer that doesn't work for you. Yeah. Apparently. Um, yeah, evidently, which is frustrating, but, but yeah, and odd, but. Um, I mean, there were some really, really sharp rocks. Like I can see how I don't like, I agree. It is weird that the same thing has kind of happened twice to Eric and it could totally be an Eric Hall problem, but there were definitely <laughs> places where just the slightest wrong step could shred any, any rubber that I could think of. Okay. Um, I, I was, I, I, I'd garnered to say I was probably a bit more careful, uh, <laughs> and foot placement than maybe Eric was, which probably has to do with just the lack of confidence uh, versus Eric's experience. But yeah. yeah, there were some pretty sharp rocks out there. So. Michelle, you also used a new piece of equipment for this this race, did you not? Oh, yeah. Used poles. So yeah, so I had a so I I thought maybe at what was it two weeks before the race, um, I was just thinking like should I use poles? Um, and I know better than anybody. Um, you know, if you don't train with it, then don't even think about it. Um, but the more that I got closer to the race, the more people convinced me like, oh, if you backpack with poles, you can, you can run with them and you're really going to want them. And my friend in Vail, um, not the one I stayed with, but another friend, like a running friend actually had just run the Leadville marathon, which is also pretty miserable. Um, and she made a comment that she could have sold her poles in the race for like a thousand dollars on the spot. (laughs) Um, and that she even gave one away uh, to to somebody who it really helped them to to finish the race. She's a very generous person. Um, at no point on this course was I willing to give a pull away. I just want to be very clear. Um, so in the end, she brought me her Solomon quiver. Um, I ha- have a Solomon vest, so it fit, fit right on. Literally the day before the race, I was like, okay, they're the lucky carbon fiber poles. And I figured out how to open them. And I was like, okay, well, 115 seems like a good height. And I wasn't going to shift them up or down based on whether I was going up or down, but, and they didn't weigh anything on the back of my pack. And I figured if they were awful, you know, I'd only have to carry them for quote 16 miles and then I could ditch them. So yeah, I, I gambled and, and I, and I texted Janice. I was like, I think I'm just going to gamble with the poles. If it's awful, then I'll ditch them in worst case scenario, you know, I Venmo Lauren like 200 bucks when the race is over because she's got to go buy new poles. Um, but best case scenario, you know, I'm just happy to have them. And I was happy to have them. But the the lingering soreness in my lap muscles, and I don't know if it's like from the poles <laughs> or from getting sick, was was actually the worst, uh, the worst soreness that I could have that I've ever experienced after any type of race. And, and the, I don't say it's that from, casually. It's from the poles. It's from the poles. Yeah. So everybody yeah. says this. Yeah. If you guys yeah. see me walking around uh, like, you know, Toco or Brookhaven with the poles, this is why. Because <laughs> I'm never, I'm never, um, I'm never not training with poles again in a race where I might use them. So that is a, that is a strong endorsement. Yeah. yeah. So don't do, you know, like do as I say, not as I do type of situation, but it, it worked out for me. So I, I was happy to have them, man. And I watched um, when I saw Eric, when I was still um, like outbound and he was, he had already made the turning point. I saw him, he was coming down the hill. He made sort of like a left-hand turn and then 
Um, it was like a big switchback. And then he saw me and he was holding one in each hand and he was just kind of running with them and they were just sort of parallel to the ground. And I was like, okay, well, that's what I'm going to do if I have to run with them. Like I was just copying what everybody else who looked like they knew what they were doing. <laughs> looked like they knew what they were doing. Very good yeah, characterization three, of me, Michelle. Thank you. <laughs> and three times, um, and my friend Lauren was like, listen, I can never get these back in the quiver by myself. Just ask somebody, they'll help you. Um, so there were times where I would fold them up and I would carry them. But as soon as I saw somebody that had the same quiver or a similar system, I would just be like, hey, do you mind just throwing these in there for me? And nobody minded. People were so nice. Um, and yeah, it was great. I don't recommend it, but I did it and I'm not sorry that I did it. So right on. very good. <laughs> so I'll just touch quickly on this, George. So my entire family used uh, poles. I, I think Grace kept them out for like 90% of the race. Mm -hmm. I think she finished with them in her pack, but that's about it. Um, but what was really cool was Carrington had the, Melissa, Grace and Carrington all have black diamond packs. And um, I have a Solomon pack, but I don't have the quiver and I couldn't find one. But um, Carrington's pack's a new one, and it has this special sling that you use for the poles. It's not really a quiver. It's actually two little loops, and you put it on. I looked at this thing, and she was asking me, how does this work? Like, she couldn't figure out how it works. So the two of us figured out how it worked together. And then I actually went to the outdoor store in Leadville, and I bought some shot cord and some little um, uh, slide locks, and I built uh, – three of these slings, one for Grace, one for Melissa, and one for myself. And that's what we used for the course. And I'll tell anybody, because um, I don't know how I would get the poles back in the quiver either. Because you, you just can't how reach it. Yeah, I don't know how right. you reach it. <laughs> but this sling, like literally, you put the poles in it in front of you, and then you just push it over your head, and you pull a string, and it's it's on your back. It's, mm -hmm. it's like that. And I built these things for like four bucks. <laughs> and it was... So it was actually really useful. I probably put the poles away and brought them out six or seven times during the race. Because uh, when you were going really fast downhill, there's no reason to have something else in your hands that you could either kill yourself with or break. Um, and so, so yeah, I thought the poles were pretty Every, Everyone too. meet my friend, Eric, the mechanical engineer. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah, by the way, if you guys could see what Eric created, it's like, it also looked very confusing. So <laughs> a quiver was like, here's a big, long pouch. The poles are these big, long things. They go in the pouch. <laughs> so anyway. All right. So last question then is, of course, what's next? Michelle, we'll start with you. What's next? Oh, no rush, um, no pressure. It doesn't have to be something no, next so, week. What's next? What you thinking? Yeah. So I'm just going to um, probably do like a 10 to 12 week. Um, I really loved the strength training. I I leaned really heavily into it this time. Um, and I, mm -hmm. I enjoy just like waking up and, and I don't know, lifting. I'm not like lifting, but I don't know exactly what to call it. Um, but I want to do more of more kind of like endurance strength. I was pretty big on actually like gaining strength um, for this race, but I want to kind of drop back into more of like endurance type workouts, you know, a lot of body weight stuff, maybe like a lot less actual weights for upper body. Um, and then probably just try to maintain, uh, like three to four runs a week with a longest run of, you know, like that 90 minute, 90 to hundred minutes once a week. Just, um, I, I think just from the time that, you know, we started training for in January, like in October and obviously registering for this race in early January, the, um, the buildup and just 
recovering, not only physically, which since the swelling's gone down and I can raise my arms again, cause my lats aren't so sore has been really, really amazing. <laughs> Um, but just like the emotional recovery, time recovery, financial. So I thought about maybe jumping into just to like a local marathon just for fun. Um, but I think rightly so, George, you were like, well, you should probably see, you know, where your head is when you when you get back with Leadville. So even though um, Leadville like was everything I hoped it would be, and I don't really have any regrets. I'm happy now just to take a little bit of I call it downtime, but, um, absolutely. you know, when it, when the weather turns, so in my mind, when it starts to get cool again, I'll probably mm-hmm. ramp up a bit. And then I think I'm thinking maybe I might try a marathon again. I'm not really sure. I, <laughs> <laughs> trail, I want to be a trail marathon or a road I'm marathon. not really sure. I don't know. Maybe. So I want to run like all the guts races that mm-hmm. I don't, well, I don't actually want to run mystery mountain marathon or half. Cause that was not fun. Um, so just like to hop in, sorry, I don't Kyle. Know. <laughs> sorry, Kyle. Uh, yeah. I don't know, like, you know, I can't even believe I'm saying this, but just maybe go back to the 19 miler and, um, but no, I was thinking, you know, maybe more like a road marathon, but really what I'm doing is just being aware that next summer is my oldest daughter's like last summer home before mm-hmm. college. Um, so if she leaves for a big chunk of time, then, then I'll probably leave also, but I don't want to put anything on the calendar that would like for sure have me gone or, or training to be gone. I want to see kind of what, where she, where she leans um, throughout the year. Sure. And then George asked you what's next. You're talking about next summer. <laughs> well, I have a two year plan right about? now. I, I'm, I'm not, here for it, man. Not, you're not I, George. I, 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 I know, but I'm putting I'm, races on my 2025 calendar. I'm here for it. <laughs> yeah, no. So I've, I've fallen victim to, yeah. So I'm thinking, um, so two years, I'd like to go, go back to Leadville and, and go if I, one of the ways to get in, um, to get a coin. For the for the, yeah. So one of the ways to get a coin for the hundred is to volunteer. Um, so like you could buy a lifetime membership, which is a little bit cheesy, but, um, if I do have a chunk of time next summer to go volunteer, maybe at an aid station for this race or, um, the mountain bike 100 or, you know, with grace running the 100. So there's like a lot of different things, but yeah, I'm really focused on like two years from now going back and maybe giving the 100 a, a try. So all right. Sorry, Janice. Can't get rid of me yet. <laughs> <laughs> but for now, I'm probably just gonna do my own thing a little bit. I don't, you know. So very good. Very good. <laughs> Eric, we know next for you is the Blue Ridge relay, but Six besides weeks. that, beyond that, um, what's next? Well, first I'd say is I'm gonna just continue my training plan that I had for Silver Rush to get ready for Blue Ridge. Mm-hmm. Um, cause it's controlling the same controls. It's going to be a lot of mileage. It's going to be hard on my feet. It's going to be a lot of uphill and downhill. So, so similar training plan, really no changes. And then, um, as per usual, um, except for last year, a week after Blue Ridge, I have the, the, uh, 12 hour dog at fill race. Right. Um, I need to defend my honor, um, with a double dog award. So I've won it every year it's been offered. So, um, I'm going to go back. Grace and I are going to get our gold dog tags because it's our fourth. Cool. Um, um, so we're super excited. It's just a local race in Greensboro that we really like going to. So we're going to do that. And then who knows after that, um, uh, Carrington, um, uh, her sister, 
um, Whitford has uh, ALS, and so there's a ALS hundred in Chicago that you can do virtually. So we're working with Carrington to set up a course for that. Hmm. And I think the three of us um, are going to look at running, Melissa, Grace, and myself are going to look at running that with Carrington. Hmm. So I think that's in the November timeframe. So I probably won't be able to defend my honor at the skinny Turkey uh, <laughs> Thanksgiving day run the 10 K, but it'll be for a worthy cause. Um, so I think that's about it. And then I guess the next time we'll be getting together for Mountain Mist, right? Uh. No, 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 no. <laughs> Sorry. No, 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 no. So I, 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 have, I, I have suggested to both of you a different race in February, um, but I'm not going to speak out all loud about it here on the podcast just yet until I can convince all of you that it's a good idea. What is in February? So, JFK? So, so no, no. JFK is Thanksgiving. It's not. Yeah. So, um, but yeah, we'll talk about it more. Um, Eric, Michelle, congratulations. I'm proud of both of you and I find both of you inspiring and I appreciate that. Um, uh, Keep up the good work and I'm I'm excited to continue following your ultra running careers of you two ultra runners. Oh gosh. I'm (laughs) I'm an endurance athlete, George. We covered this. (laughs) Absolutely. I'm Um, I'm a jogger. (laughs) (laughs) thanks y'all thanks again for joining us for another episode of the most pleasant exhaustion podcast you can find us on facebook at facebook.com slash pleasant podcast on twitter at pleasant podcast on instagram at most pleasant exhaustion we're available on Stitcher, SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts. Be sure to share us with your friends. We're brought to you by ITL Coaching and Performance, who you can find at itlcoaching.com. Their Twitter is at itlcoaching, and their Facebook group is facebook.com slash itlcoachingandperformance. You can find them on Instagram at itlcoaching. We're also proud to be sponsored by Elemental Altitude, Atlanta's best and only altitude training facility. You can find them at ElementalAltitude.com, on Instagram at ElementalAltitude, or on Facebook at Facebook.com slash ElementalAltitude. Blue Pineapple Travel can be found at BluePineappleTravel.com, on Facebook at Facebook.com slash BluePineappleTravel, or on Instagram at BluePineappleTravel. And finally, High Echelon. You can find High Echelon at HighEchelonCPA.com. On behalf of Michelle Frank, Patrick Ollinger, and Eric Hall, I'm George Darden. Thanks for listening to the Most Pleasant Exhaustion Podcast. We'll see you next time.